Do you want to just go straight into the show this week? Yes. Yeah, because I think we can, and I'll find a way to cut it together. (laughs) (laughs) In that case, I will actually tell you what happened this morning, because um, it's a cautionary tale. Okay, yeah, go for it. So... Um, what happens was I woke up, um, it's your evening, but it's my morning, right? Yeah. Uh, I woke up and you know how, you know how you have, when your alarm clock goes off and you spend like a few more minutes laying in bed and I'm trying to avoid looking at Twitter at this time because I don't know, doom scrolling is a thing, but <laughs> I noticed that in the telemetry deck Slack, some users are saying, dude, um, you pushed an update to the app yesterday and I can't load any data. Ooh. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> so I open the mobile app and I see the same problem. It's just like um, all my, my inside cards are just like immediately switching to loading error. So I'm like, okay, what what happens? Yep. So um, I... I went to the computer and like checked and the server itself was was working um it was like responding to requests it was like responding to pings and the the server process was also working but what happened was this that yesterday evening i pushed an update to the server to enable some new uh, app features and somehow I usually have tried to be like super clean about using, you know, feature branches for different things. But somehow one line of code made it into the the main branch that should never have been there. Right. Um, and this line of code is um, – so I'm trying whenever I have the time to push the whole process uh, forward – or my whole way of like how I'm calculating data, I'm trying to push that to a new kind of method where I use a new um, query language and that, among other things, will help me uh, pre-calculate and cache these uh, these um, queries better. Yep. And I have on a feature branch, I have an experiment running where I'm just ripping out the current calculation engine, bit, uh, or not really ripping out, just the, I'm just replacing the current calculation engine with this one function call that says like, oh yeah, just hand this data over to the new calculation data engine. Um, and that's on a feature branch, but somehow exactly this change got into the main branch, which oh no. um, the data is being calculated correctly, but it's being returned in a way that the current app doesn't understand. So the data was actually returned to the app. It was just like the, the, the app was just like, okay, I can't decode this. This is garbage. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, going through Git, uh, luckily with my, with a graphical Git client. And I'm like, oh, okay. How did this change make it, make it in there? Like, uh, somehow it must have been. I don't know, stashed and then reapplied to the main thread, uh, main branch. Yep. So um, I'm just I'm just reverting that one file, recommitting, and luckily I have this whole process set up that uh, will automatically uh, push everything to the server. So while we've been talking, I've been able to um, to launch the app here and see that yes, my insights are de- displaying correctly again. Brilliant. <laughs> the existing calculation engine is back. Uh, everything seems fine in telemetry deck land. Oh, well, that's uh, a cautionary tale, and it's uh, good yeah. to know that it's all working again. Especially so, yeah. <clears throat> the cautionary tale is if you have automatic deployment on your main thread, uh, main branch, um, yes, do do take care that only the, the things that um, are really, really ready for prime time end up on the main branch. Absolutely. It's, it is easily done as well if you're stashing changes and you're swapping between branches. I think uh, most developers have been there in one form or another. Yeah, I might have like I might have gotten sloppy just because this is a repository that I only work alone in. And you know how it is. Like As, as soon as you work with other people together at a, at a project, your, your discipline regarding like how clean your branches are, how often you do feature branches and pull requests and stuff like that, 
that yeah. goes up, at least for me. Like, I'm slowly starting to recognize that uh, unit tests are super helpful in this in this way because I can do a lot of uh, automatic testing before committing stuff uh, or before pushing stuff to the server. But um, all the manual code review things or the you know another pair of eyes is checking this out things they they're not applying in this in this repository no uh, so so yeah i i think i have to get more um i want to say professional in in this uh, repository again well i wonder right if you've got the unit tests are happening and this is swift on the server right right yeah so and 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 is it possible to execute this on a Mac? Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I'm, I'm I'm developing it on a Mac, and then I'm compiling it in GitHub Actions, and I'm just pushing the binary to my to my API servers. That's cool. So I wonder, like, because we in, in my workplace we have um, BitRise for mm-hmm. compiling our, our our apps, and right. essentially we use BitRise to do our our um, whole sort of CI build automation type of thing. And one of the bonuses that we've got with that is that it links through back to back to GitHub. Um, mm-hmm. I believe a GitHub action is what kicks it off as well, so that um, it receives the the hook or whatever's going on right. behind the scenes to tell it, okay, right, this is ready to to take a look at. Bitrise kicks in every time we have a PR arranged for um, anything going into our main development branch. Um, and we have a bunch of other criteria and stuff that run for other cases as well. But the beauty of it is, is that that pull request itself gets annotated sometime later with the test results. Right. And so we don't merge until BitRise has got a big tick next to it. Um, and, and if any of those tests have fallen over, then that doesn't happen. So that's a nice automated way of that happening. Nobody can ever say they've forgotten to run the tests, you know. Um, and we we have rules as a team that we don't merge until the the checks that get run. We've got Bitrise is one check, and we use Sonar Cloud as well for for another check, which sort of checks the. Um, it's like a linter essentially in a lot of ways, mm, okay. but it's a little bit more involved. Um, so you get some level of linting from Sonar Cloud against the structure of our code itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also is quite good at pointing out some obvious bugs and even potential security risks as well. Like if you've got specific keys or secrets in the code, so not oh, that is smart. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, bearing in mind as well, my team structure is a team where we've got a blend of of different skill sets. You know, I've got quite a few interns working within our area. We've, mm. we've got quite a few juniors and people that don't do iOS all the time. So. Again, having some of these sort of, um, I kind of think of them like the guardrails when you're bowling, you know, on <laughs> either side yeah. of the lane. These things sort of help keep people within the the track reasonably well as well. So, yeah, I wonder right. if you could wire your unit tests up to something like that and then actually have that. Oh, they back. are. They are. All um, right, cool, 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 cool. So I, I am running my unit tests um, locally, of course, yep. but I'm also running them inside GitHub Actions. So ah, GitHub Actions, if you don't know, is um, like they can like you can trigger external services like Bitrise for building stuff. Yeah. But you can also write this YAML file, and it will describe like various steps that can be just like shell commands, and they run in these Docker containers. So what you do, what what you would do usually for a Swift project is, um, depending on like if it's, if it's an iOS project you need to have a Mac Docker container with Swift of course yeah but there's also Linux Swift containers so you would require one of those and then just run the command that checks out the code then run the command that builds and tests the code and then that's your whole step and then you have you add a a dependent step on that that says like if the previous step which is the build and test uh worked then run a build and deploy step, maybe. Brilliant. Um, so I believe right now I have um, set it up uh, in, in a way that it will only uh, send stuff, uh, deploy stuff to the server when the tests actually pass. Because, yeah, I mean, if I'm writing tests, I want to run them all the time. And I don't want to run them 
manually lag. I want them to run automatically. Yeah. Um, the thing is, just like for this kind of thing, I I didn't I didn't set up tests. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. So so but, you just wouldn't have seen it in that regard. Yeah, but I I'm actually like thinking about um, it might be time to mock the the various database and query servers. Uh, in a way that I can run tests like this without having to spin up a query server or a database server. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and another thing you could have in your situation potentially is having some sort of test user that's set up and something automatic to go and try and do do some insights retrieval from the client side, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that then operates as like an integration test or a smoke test to check that everything's okay after a deployment. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. That might be possible. I mean, there is a defined API and I can just like give it a give this thing a user token and then make it run like some queries and see if they return expected results. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that is smart. That is smart. Thank you. No I worries. Will do that. This is the sort of thing that again my company is sort of starting to to build up a bit of a suite of these kind of tools. Um mm-hmm. We've got a whole bunch of, of things wired up with Jira and we're using a product called Jira X-Ray to kind of catalog and link through different types of reporting. And I think, I mean, that's that's one tool and it doesn't really do what we've just described, but it's like all of these things combined together are giving us visibility of all these different edges of the stack that we've got as a company. And the thing I really appreciate about that is is that uh, we can't all be across every single place at once as a team. I mean, we've mm-hmm. got people whose jobs it is to do things, you know, in terms of testing, in terms of security, that side of thing. But me as an iOS manager and iOS coach, I don't necessarily have insight into all of the other systems. But with all of these things giving us this information, I can go and have a look. And it gives me a bit of assurance then as well that, like, um, if we do have any sort of problem that one of us is going to hear about it before, you know, the public that uses our products goes and finds it as well. So yeah, that's good. Yeah. That sounds like a very good uh, way of doing these things. Um, I feel like my personal philosophy is like, um, and I might've failed my personal philosophy here a little bit because um, I, I think that there's like, like a, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs regarding software bugs, which yep. says that, okay, if errors occur, you should automatically hear about them. And then, like, if you automatically hear about them, then you can also, like, try to um, have prevention method measures like unit testing and integration testing that automatically prevent them from going out to the customers. But like the hearing about them is like the lowest rung of that pyramid, the thing that needs to be there. Like once errors occur on the customer side, you should be you should have uh, hear about them. Yeah. And I thought I had that covered because I do have a service that periodically checks all my servers if they return just general 200 okay messages. But it turns out I'm not testing that specific API endpoint. Yeah. And I don't know if that service can do it. I, it, it will, like, because I think it will just send an HTTP GET, but I might have to check that out. Depends on what um, it is. This, um, is it Pingdom? There's a service no, that does... it is... Uh, I forget the name right now. Hang on. I'm, I can look it up in while we are talking. No problem. Um, um, but, but I was going to say, I, I know with, with some of these, you can tell them to query a page mm-hmm. and to give you an error if it doesn't match an expected output. Right. So again, you can potentially set up some sort of um, something that gives you a readout. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. It's called uh, Better Uptime. Ah, cool. I I found it like a few. I, I actually found it via a Twitter ad, and I'm like, okay, I like that's actually good targeting. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm gonna try that out. It was very easy to set up. It's um, I'm in the free tier, which is also very attractive to me right now. Yeah. And um, it gives you this really cute, nice um, status page automatically, which is um, which is a bonus. 
But yeah, I have to check out if they can actually do post requests with um, with a payload because then I could make them do this kind of testing. Yeah, exactly. You can set up with your your keys even potentially hmm. configured inside of that, and then obviously you could have it give you back, like I say, a specific JSON payload from your API, and then right. if that doesn't come back, set off the alarms. <laughs> Very okay. nice. So that's what I've been doing the last day. Um, yeah. Do you want to hear about what I did the last week? Or do you want to tell me first what you did? I can tell you what I did because I think that's probably yes, a shorter please. section. And then we can, can bounce back to your world. Um, cool. So let me try and think about the best way of pulling this together. So I'm working on um, Super Secret Project, which oh, I need a yeah. much better code name for it. Um, if we, if you have any ideas for a code name, then, then let me know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll think of some while you talk. Okay, cool. So, and this project, what I have said about this already is that it's playing with, uh, video streaming and I'm, I'm playing with WebRTC. And, mm -hmm. uh, so one aspect of this project is that it has to have a, um, a calling screen and I have decided, well, okay. I'm essentially doing like a, a video conferencing app at this stage. And it then hit me like, okay, I don't know anything about the right UI for this situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got a, a prototype of something else, which is going to bolt onto this and link up to it all. Um, so I went through a bunch of different apps that do um, video calls and, essentially distilled it down to something that's a composite of, of a few of my favorites. So I looked at FaceTime and was like, yeah, okay, there's a few ideas in there that I think work really nicely. Um, looked at a bunch of other ones and I then sat down for a couple of evenings and just rammed out the UI as quickly as possible. Very nice. Um, did you did you use SwiftUI? Did you use UIKit? Uh, SwiftUI, yep. And uh -huh. I'm using the, the router design pattern that i've i've blogged of about course. in the past yeah uh and because i'm using that all the time during my working day as well it's like i'm super quick in that environment mm -hmm. now too so yeah things have, have come together quite quick i've got a um one of the views it has a a view from the front-facing camera which mm -hmm. i then have a material view over the top that gives it like a sort of frosted glass kind of look. Oh, um, yeah. I've seen that in the FaceTime screens. It looks yeah. really cute. Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 you know, took a little bit of inspiration here or there where I saw it. And um, mm -hmm. that that seemed like a cool one. So, yeah, I pulled that together in this design. And that was one of the places where I had to use UIKit. So... Mm -hmm. The uh, the the front camera view itself is is a UI kit based view, but honestly, if you know both, like wrapping up a UI kit view is trivial in a lot of ways. You know, so yeah, I I, I don't really get too bothered about switching between both. Like the master is Swift UI, you know how the views mm -hmm. are connected together is Swift UI. I'm not using UI kit for any flow or that side of things. Um, but then to take a UI kit view, uh, lay it out programmatically, and then create a, a UI um, view controller representable for Swift UI, that that doesn't take very long at all. No, that's fine. I, it yeah. gets worse when you're trying to, to wrap an app kit view and just have no clue about app kit. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is that what you've done over with the telemetry deck? Um, actually, no, I've tried to avoid that, but I really should look into it because it's getting like, like the work that I'm doing to prevent having to do that is probably more that, than the work I, I would have to do to just learn and implement these things in AppKit. Right. Cause I, I, I kind of favor, unless you absolutely need to go there with AppKit, then I kind of favor using a, um, a catalyst based approach for for mac mm -hmm. for mac os if you are on ios as well yeah that does make sense i mean i think what i like about using swift ui and just like compiling for both of them is 
you get all these controls that look very Mac-like and feel very native at home on the Mac. Yeah. Um, but the downside is you get you don't get some things that you sh- think you should get, like some default Mac things. Like, for example, uh, three-pane split views are very hard to do right. And there's a few features like opening and closing these panes that just don't exist in SwiftUI. Right. And you kind of have to fake it. And the thing is, I even see... Um, the telltale sign if you faked it instead of like using the native Mac um, app kit inter implementation is the native Mac app kit implementation the the divider between the panes goes up into the toolbar and also divides the toolbar and if Ooh. you fake it it's just um just a thing that's underneath the toolbar right and I even see Apple faking these things so. Yeah, they they really don't have an answer for that right now. I also I, I remember I remember asking like multiple engineers about it at WWDC last uh, last year. They they didn't have an answer either. <laughs> so um, uh, this is not me being mad. This is me being like, okay, so SwiftUI is of course in the in one of the first iterations still. So um, and it will take a while to grow and be able to encompass all all use cases. So, yeah, like, like jumping down into UI kit or app kit at the um, every now and then seems like a reasonable uh, thing to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think if you can keep it self-contained mm-hmm. to some degree, you know, so you've got, um, in my case, obviously, I had the the view controller was all laid out in its own file, and then to go and give that to SwiftUI was literally just writing a wrapper around that. Mm-hmm. Then that I think that works quite nicely, and if you had to switch between um, app kit and UI kit, I guess you could do, you know, wrappers for either, and then put a parent view around the top for SwiftUI that just did the yeah, switching about between right. one or the other. Yeah, and I think if you can do that, if you can achieve that, then you can kind of keep your sanity over in the SwiftUI side of things. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. I mean, you're still going to go get a few gray hairs here or there, but you know, <laughs> um, that's that's certainly been my experience so far. Is to just try and keep UI kits in in a very specific box when I have to mm-hmm. go there, wrap it as best I can, and then keep everything else in in Swift UI land, and just be that very sounds like very a very specific. smart decision. Um, do you want to? talk uh, i have like one or two more questions about your secret project but yeah. if you're not ready to share then that's fine but i'm going to ask the questions and then if if you don't want to answer them you can just like have an apple like response like oh we don't talk about future projects or something yeah um, or we'll we'll just so, cut and i'll just say scene missing and we'll do the, the rest <laughs> of the show <laughs> um my question is um you were talking about web rtc yeah. and uh, do you have your own implementation here, is there, or is there some kind of component that that you're using? So WebRTC, as far as I understand it, is a technology to transfer like voice and video data? Yeah, yeah. So the way I think of WebRTC, um, it's essentially it's a protocol. It's a defined sort of set of interfaces for transmitting audio and video over the internet. Mm-hmm. And these days, Google, I believe, run the the project itself, or they're certainly one of its strongest backers. And there is reference on what the standard is supposed to be, and there are then a load of different implementations Mm code-wise. And Google kind of operates. If you go to webrtc.org, I believe it's underpinned by, by Google backing them, and all their code is is sort of maintained over by Makes Google. sense, yeah. I yeah. mean, I'm, Google Hangouts uses it probably exclusively. Yeah, but I mean, everything, pretty much every video service you're likely to use is sort of underpinned by this these days. Mm-hmm. Now, for iOS, we used to have a CocoaPod that was based off of that code, and we were... I say we in the royal we of the iOS community. If we had this and wanted to use it, we had to um, import that pod, and it would come down from from whatever Google have put together. 
you're welcome to go and build it yourself manually, but it would take forever. Um, and I've, I've worked with that uh, version of the library before um, on, on some previous client work um, in my former job. And um, there were various limitations. Like I remember the, the pod itself wasn't compiled for bit code. So if you wanted that, you needed to go and do it yourself. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question very well, but coming oh, back but I, now, I, I'm love, I'm, I love hearing about this right now because this is a world that I've never really used, uh, like yep. um, live audio video streaming. So please go on. Okay, so when you use these libraries and you talk to a um, you, you talk to somebody else, a call gets established. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, the the short version of this is that you have some sort of server that handles the connection between the clients and initially tries to instigate the um, collecting enough information to be able to then set up the video streams between the two. Okay. And what happens is, is that on either side, potential connections get created. And I believe they sort of call them candidates. Mm-hmm. And your signaling server, this bit in the middle, refers stuff back and forwards and collects the information together and establishes the, gives these candidate pairs back to the main um, core of the RTC library that you're using locally to let it try and set them up and get them running. Um, there's another complication. Wait, so are you saying that, like, um, if I use a video stream or video call service, that my actual video data doesn't even go through their, their servers? It's like peer to peer? It doesn't have to go through that service. Oh, okay. Now, then, this is the next bit is that um, it can go through their service, and in most cases, it does for the bigger services. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, if you're behind a particular type of local network, quite typically if you're working in a, a office somewhere and you're behind a, a few different switches and things um, and whatever is set up there locally you might not have a direct route and if that's the case then there is uh, what's called a turn server uh, which mm-hmm. I believe then handles the kind of uh, the the, the um, it, it handles the connection between the clients. Essentially, your video goes to the turn server. The turn server turns it back down to the other one, and vice versa. Um, I think that's what's going on. Somebody who knows far more about this than me could probably pile into this conversation and say, "No, that's not not how it goes at all." Um, but that's my loose understanding: is you have a turn server when which sit, the turn server sits in the middle, and it helps handle things um, when there isn't a direct route. I believe that that is what goes on. Okay, but this also makes it possible for like um, for like small companies or even like private people mm-hmm. to set up like a server that would facilitate these connections without having to like create a huge amount of or pay for a huge amount of bandwidth at some hoster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're gonna use bandwidth wherever you go with whatever you're doing, so you have to right. have you know that on whatever service you're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I say, in, in a lot of circumstances, you could skip some of that if there's a direct route, I believe, and that would take some of the the load off of that service um, because then it is peer to peer, like you were saying before. But then there are there are other situations and other versions of this and other configurations of WebRTC where this doesn't happen because, for example, say you're on a, a Zoom call and you've got multiple people. Um, mm-hmm. talking all at the same time, then you probably don't want to receive each of their connections um, again and again and again. You don't want all of the peers to be sending to all of the other peers. You just want to send to something in the middle that then sends it down. <laughs> that would have been my next question. Yeah. Because like yeah. this gets like um, N squared uh, yep. pretty quickly. Yep. Exactly. And and uh, you don't want that. that. That's not good for anybody. So... Um, there are, and this brings me to what I'm looking at at the moment. So I've got my prototype set up and part of the prototype can talk to a basic signaling server, uh, that I run just locally on my laptop and I can do a call peer to peer over my local network. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. I can now play with my idea. Great. 
but the next step really is for me to set up some of this stuff on actual servers and then have my app routing through those instead so that I can do proper calls between me and somebody who's not one of my kids testing on the other side of the house. <laughs> nice. Um, they've been great. They're brilliant, brilliant beta testers. I can I can offer one of my cats if you like. Yeah, yeah, please do. I mean, it's not you'd need to have an opposable thumb really for for operating it. So you might need to help. Okay, them. I might I might help with operating it, but then yep. like. <laughs> but um, no, that's that's sort of next steps really. Like I'm building this prototype up. It's gonna do something to connect to one of these services, and to be confirmed is really what sort of service I'm going to use and this is where I'm slightly slightly clueless about things like containers and configuring things like that and setting things up in such a way that uh, if I needed it to scale could it scale do I even want it to scale this is a small mm-hmm. idea probably not just yet but you know I, I don't want to be uh, sort of caught unawares if I needed to do that right do you yeah. want my unpopular opinion on server scaling? Go on. Um, unless you have everything set up in a way that allows you to already, without you having to do one more minute of work, auto-deploy a Docker container somewhere and it just magically works. Yep. Docker is the wrong choice for starting a tiny project. Okay. Because, because it it adds overhead in that you have to especially if you don't know docker or don't know don't know docker well it adds overhead you have to learn the things it adds overhead in that like there's like not a lot but there's like some performance losses of course yeah. um, because you are you are putting like a diff- another layer on top of things and the containers have to like talk to each other and whatever um the thing is also that um Depending on the service, you either pay a little bit more to have the Docker version of the service or you have a little bit more work because you have to um, create a server and then on that server install the Docker daemon and everything yep. and then keep that keep that running and keep that updated and stuff like that. Yep. And all of that for the eventuality that someone on Twitter, on Reddit – will discover your app and be like, oh, yeah, let me tell my 40 million friends, (laughs) which if they're going to tell their 40 million friends, your service is going down either way. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And the the likelihood of uh, this happening, of like, you know, we always hear about these things where like someone creates a thing and then suddenly it, it rises meteorically, like, I don't know, Wordle. Yep. And, but most of these stories, they're in the past, like when there were fewer things. Like I remember my very first iPhone app. Um, at the time, they were like I was like among the first batch of iPhone apps ever on the store. And I I told this story before, but I'm just making yeah. a point here. Um, uh, among the time, there was like maybe 200 or maybe 400 other iOS apps. So my app was super easily findable. It was the only app of its type. And the one euro buying price was was like, oh, yeah, this is a new cool thing. Of course, I'm going to buy this for one euro or one dollar, I guess. Yep. Um, so, But the, things are different now. And the the likelihood that your project will gain any traction and be like suddenly inexplicably overnight successful is incredibly slim and in my opinion uh and feel free to fight me on this i know this is like a slightly controversial opinion yeah. um in my opinion what you need to do as someone who has a project who wants it to succeed is bang on about that project like Tell people about it. Um, try out various channels of getting the word out. And while things like Wordle might look to an outsider like instant success, because we all have only seen like the the you know like the incredibly steep exponential curve of growth that has been like the last month or so of Wordle's growth before it was actually sold to the NYT, which is just amazing yeah um 
or or terrifying depends on how you look at it anyway <laughs> um i i bet that if we were to look into most of these projects i don't know about wordle but i'm just using it as an example if we are looking into the history of these projects we see these things that people make and that are growing slowly and slowly and slowly and then slightly faster and then slightly faster and then slightly faster even and that gives you plenty of time to do um to think about actual server scaling yeah for sure and there there are other things that you can do i guess to kind of slow stuff down yeah i think if you can rent a virtual machine at some service for very cheap i think that's a good way to start that's how I started with telemetry deck. Now I have more servers and some of them are bare metal because of performance. I still yep. haven't made the switch to Docker, but that might be in the next year or so. Okay. So it doesn't have to be the first thing you do. If you if you can like if you can easily launch it using just one VM, that's fine. Especially a VM because you can scale that thing for basically free. Like if the if if your very cheap VM is going, going getting overwhelmed, you can with you can just rescale it to have a bigger processor and more RAM. That's and true. with yep. many services, you can also just put a load balancer in front of it and just like clone the machine a few, a few times. From my point of view, this this has been more of a case of just everything I've come across from from other people has sort of been saying, yeah, you want to use Docker because then you can spin it up very quickly and easily. And yeah, if you the thing is, scale, if you have you if you that. have Docker experience and if you have the infrastructure ready, Docker is really really convenient. But I'm arguing that at your point in the product, um, it might be worth thinking about. Maybe Docker is not right for you. Yeah, because um, it it like you will have some overhead at the beginning, and it depends on. I mean, how much experience with uh, Docker you have already, and which kind of hoster you have. Like, there's these ho there's hosters, of course, where you can just throw a Docker image at them. But in my experience, they're a little bit more expensive than um, just where you just rent a VM. Yes. But I mean, yeah. you might not you might not care because the prices might still be low enough uh, that that it's fine for you. Yes, yeah, a possibility. I, it doesn't put me off though, like installing a v VM and then adding whatever it needs to boot docker and onto that and and go in that route as well so mm -hmm. i think you make a compelling argument and there's definitely a compelling argument to me for uh just setting up a vm just installing what it needs and then just getting it working at this stage because it's it's an mvp right now it's mm -hmm. it's, it's not a full-blown product it's right. not going to be a full-blown product for probably until the beginning of next year knowing like the amount of free time i don't have you know right. <laughs> this, this could take me quite a while um so there is something to be said to just getting started and not put oh, i have, uh, have another exception to to this by the way i'm yep. sorry um if the server you want to have is like i in in my rant just now i kind of assumed that you want to you want to write the server yourself but if this is something from from another organization or something that already provides a docker container then of course use the docker container because then <laughs> it will be all like configured and compiled for you well that's a good thing and that, that's a good point because one of the things i'm looking at at the moment is just that so as i described it to you before the mm -hmm. two sort of key concepts is that you've got this um server to handle the connection between the peers so they can give each other information about each other to start the streams um, and that's your your signaling server effectively and then you've also got these other parts that do the relaying if you need them to and i'm very sure i've just described them wrong earlier on but anyway turn servers stun servers relay servers they all sit there and form part of your your video web rtc stack on the server um mm -hmm. the signaling server is the bit that will really be mine um the other bit of it I can quite happily just spin up whatever in in a in a container um and then connect across to it so there the are relaying. solutions for that already yes yeah uh -huh. um so that's that's what I'm trying to sort of figure out at the moment is uh 
is setting up enough of that side of things so that I can just focus on the bit about the clients talking to each other and kind of not have to care about any of the other side of it other than giving it resource. So, yeah, I could see this very easily being sort of two parts. You know, I've got my my container running that relay part of the service, and then I've also got my, my VM that is then talking to that container. I mean, if you're if you're running containers anyway, you might as well just put the put the, your own stuff into a container as well. It's I guess because so. especially yeah. you you um kind of alluded to or you've asked you have you've asked me a lot of questions about Swift on the server. Yes. So I kind of assume yeah. that you're thinking about writing this in in Vapor, which is the Swift framework I'm using. Yes. Um, and their default project template already includes a Docker file. So you kind of get a more or less easy start into Dockerizing the whole thing. Mm. And if you're if you have to um, use Docker anyway, I mean, then put everything in it. Like, don't do half and half. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, a potential too. Um, I'm really early days on this, so this is uh, I'm in my fact finding mode with Swift right. on the server and with all of the different components I'm going to need to use. Um, but yeah, I think to bring this back round to sort of where we started the conversation off, mm-hmm. if I was putting do- learning Docker and, 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 and making it perfectly distributed and clustered and all the rest of it over on the server side, if I was putting that in front of just shipping the app, then yeah, I take your point. It would be, it would be absolutely better to just run a VM and get on with life. Um, and do things sort of a, a, a more um, a, a less involved manner um, up until you need to, because like you were saying before, with the best will in the world, you're kind of building something for a, a customer base that isn't there at that mm-hmm. point. Um, but I, th- I have a feeling this this project is going to be a trade off of some of these worlds. You know, like we've said before, that some of it will be. Uh, kind of just using somebody else's container just to save me the work and then some of it is going to be uh, potentially making my own thing that goes off into a, a docker container if I'm going the vapor route mm-hmm. or potentially even something just a little bit more basic that's just a, a small app running on the VM that happens to be coded in Swift Right. Yeah. I mean I'm super interested in how it goes for you either way yeah yeah, I mean, this is uh, potentially quite new ground, really, for myself, and it's a side of dev that I'm I'm learning a lot about, and I think that's the appeal right now. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, I know I can make apps, I'm making apps all day, but can I do this other, other bit as well that sort of makes it all come to life? Um, which I, I, I wonder, if is that something you found with Vapor, like sort of going, going from the app world to the server world there? Huh, that's a good question. The thing is, it's it's very similar, but then again, uh, because of because you're writing it's things in Swift, right? But then again, as soon as you scratch the surface, it somehow gets very different too. Um, and I'm very lucky that I have a lot of experience writing web servers in other uh, languages and frameworks like Django and Python and Ruby on Rails. Because a lot of the concepts that they use also made it into Vapor. Right. And, um, but either way, you chose a great, or should you, should you use Vapor, you chose a great, um, time to, to join that because, um, async, async is finally arrived in Swift 5.5. Yep. And the people who make Vapor, they immediately had a solution ready. I, I, they must have like st- started working on that some time ago, um, where you can immediately use uh, async await in in Vapor, which is really amazing. Um, so to to back up a bit, uh, Vapor is extensively using a technology called Swift Neo or Swift NIO. I don't know. I have never heard it pronounced, to be honest. Yeah. And Swift NIO is, I think, if I'm not completely mistaken, developed by Apple. Um, but it's it's a bit older already. But it's a set of libraries and code to do futures and promises 
in Swift, but with um, without using async await, because I assume at the time of development that wasn't available yet. Yes. And it uses a lot of blocks and callbacks and stuff like that. So your typical call would look like, I don't know, like something enters your API server, it goes to a router function that says like, okay, this is the path and these are my parameters, so I'm calling this function with these parameters. And then in the function, you would say like, okay, I'm I'm checking if my user is actually logged in with this request. And if so, I'm adding a dot map to the end of the call and then a block to that map that's being called only when my user is logged in. Okay. And then inside that, I would, I would maybe construct a database qu- query and then... At the end of that query, I would like, I don't know, add a dot query function, and then at the end of that, I would add a dot map, and then another block that would run once the query returns with the values from the this, database. This kind of sounds like it's turtles of blocks all the way down, right? This is it is. Yeah, yeah. you get like you get like these huge pyramids. Yep. And the Vapor developers have a various um, methods of trying to. Um, of trying to keep the pyramids a bit smaller. Like, for example, there's a thing called flat map, which is named the same thing as the flat map function that's now called the compact map function, but yes. it's different. Yeah, It's different in that it takes not a result of a future, but the future itself, so that you can write your blocks underneath each other instead of, like, putting them inside each other yeah but that only works part of the time and then of course the swift compiler sometimes gets confused because um it needs to infer um data types that are like four blocks deep and it sometimes will give up or be just confused and then your whole code doesn't work anymore and you don't have re- don't really have a it doesn't really give you a place where where the thing is going wrong because it's just confused about the whole function of function of functions. So async await is a an absolute glass of cold water in that <laughs> um, <laughs> in that world. Not because the uh, vapor developers have done a bad job with the other thing, just because it makes things so much easier. And the vapor developers have embraced it fully, and they have immediately. Um, grafted various add-ons to the building blocks of the system that you can basically use everything that would use uh, Swift NIO futures in the underneath them. You can just wrap that and add a I don't know dot get function, and then suddenly it's async await. Oh, that's beautiful! And so I've I've started actually writing all my new code and converting some of my old code to async await. And it is absolutely beautiful. It is suddenly you have like functions that are like three lines long. It's like, okay, await that the fact that I'm checking my user, await the fact that I'm getting their, let's say, organization structure from the database, yeah. and then await the fact that I'm doing something or returning something. It becomes really clear in terms yes. of that. And I don't just mean because you've lost the pyramids um, but actually, it becomes quite descriptive as well. I think mm-hmm. at that point, and the, the block also kind it of becomes that. it gets the right um, things are are in code. The code is in the right order. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you have these callback functions, and they're in the middle of your of your block of code, but then below the callback function is what is is more is more code, and that's the code down below in the file was executed first and then the callback function is eventually called. Yes. And with async await, everything is like, if you read your function or a file or whatever from the top down, everything happens in that order. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think that's super powerful for being clear about what you're doing. And the, the, the bit of that that I think that it's obvious when you say it, but it's not obvious when you're working with it is it makes it so much easier for you to get into the context of what you're doing when you've had a break or when it's not you that's written the code, you know? So, yes. so in our example, doing solo dev projects, it's that value of like future me can come and look at this code 
and I can probably be doing meaningful changes or edits to it within a few minutes of just looking through it. Whereas when it's all lots and lots of blocks, you it kind of takes you just that bit longer to build up that mental map. Um, totally. Yeah, and and what I'm finding um, in my working in my in my job with my team mm-hmm. is it's that other side as well. It's about being able to communicate to each other what this thing is really trying to do and and callbacks are one of these funny things that i found that i understand and i feel like i sort of understood them pretty pretty quickly and learned them ages ago and i forgot you know that they were even something i found difficult at the time but actually communicating what a callback is doing and what asynchronous code is doing when you send it off into these blocks to people who are brand new to swift development um it does have a bit of a learning curve and it does, yeah. It's it's hard to understand. Yeah, we yeah. sometimes forget that. And and then when you start sort of having to explain things like, well, you've got to be careful here that you don't catch yourself, and things like that mm-hmm. in certain circumstances for iOS. Obviously, it's, in particular, you know, you have these situations where it's like, okay, you don't want to capture that object there. Like, it's typically itself because then we can't deallocate it. And if we move between screens and that asynchronous thing is still happening, then we kind of end up keeping a zombie of it around that's no longer part of the view hierarchy, right? That's I get it. Mm-hmm. You you will get that. And many other people listening to this will get that. But somebody who's brand new into iOS dev is just looking at you going, what? Really? Uh, I, 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 you've lost me three steps back with that, because now you have to explain yeah. Arc. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, I have um, like I, my my co- I have a coworker slash intern. Intern is probably not the right word, but um, anyway, she is a, ver- a rather new developer who's working with me on the Mac and iPhone apps for telemetry deck. And cool. so I, I I I stepped with her through the code, and and she's like, okay, why in all the blocks and why are you writing weak self here everywhere? Yes. And I'm just like, oh yeah, that's the magic incantation. You just have to say it for good luck or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I established in my team a house style where that is what we do. If you've got a block, mm. you use weak self if you call self inside of that block. Uh, why? Because right. that's what we do. And then right. the kind of more full explanation that happens after that is a, is a chat about what arc does and, and what some of the pitfalls are. And I mean, there are circumstances where you don't want to capture weak self, for example, uh, but they should be the exception rather than the rule. I feel, and the potential for, for a, a junior dev, especially to, to hurt themselves on the edges of that and waste, hours and hours and hours trying to debug mm-hmm. something that's what we're trying to solve you know if we do this all the time then then you can't hurt yourself there in that way and then the situations where we don't need to do that well they're they're the exception um Com- completely agreed but getting um, back to um async await yeah i kind of feel like that's been an absolute godsend for a couple of things because just being able to say that this function is asynchronous and by the way it affects ui so we're going to make it operate on the main actor um and be really really explicit about you know threading and the intention at that point mm-hmm. that that is beautiful and i've found the benefit of that in the last week actually with 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 one of the projects that i'm working on so uh, without going too deep into the structure of the app, we've got um, like a global object that contains some global state and it can do mm-hmm. different operations. So if you think about it being, for example, a a login manager, it's managing the, the state about whether the user is logged in or not. And then the UI is responding to that. Um, if the user is signed out or there's any sort of intermittent stages, um, for example, we've put our password in and we're now waiting for a passcode to come back from uh, an SMS or something like that. It's got these intermittent states. Um, right. We want to update those states when different things happen and different bits within this this managing service operate. Um, we want to make sure that when that state gets manipulated, we're on the main thread. 
And in the old version of this code, we had a lot of dispatch main async calls going on. And we've been able starting to... a pyramid there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, pyramid scheme, not good. <laughs> um, and so we've now been able to have like a update the start update the status function, put main actor in front of it, and then it's really intentional everywhere it gets called. You know that 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 manipulates um, some state that the UI depends upon. So it's got main actor in front of it. I no longer need to worry about all these other bits that try and call it what thread they're actually calling from. This is just amazing. Yeah. I love this. Yeah, and you know, um, if your function's not async already, then you're going to have to uh-huh. wrap it in a task, and that looks a little bit like dispatching to the main queue, uh, but it's really not. You know, from a new dev point of view, that's just like, okay, I've got to do that to, to send it off. Um, but the locality of where the code runs now has that main actor flag in front of it. So I can look at that function and I can say that is main thread affecting. And it's really intentional. Let me go back a step. And just for the people who haven't used async await, uh, let me just give them the basic building blocks of what we're talking about so they can actually follow us better. Um, If you're an iOS or macOS or even Vapor developer, if you're using Swift, then you've seen the async await proposals and you've seen probably the WWDC sessions and it sounds all very complicated but it's in fact once you've started using it 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 becomes pretty clear at least to to me it became pretty clear um because it's not that deep actually it's it's um it's a very small set of building blocks yeah so uh, you can mark a function as async just like the word async is in the function declaration next to the word throws if it's in there. And what that means is like um, this function will probably not run on the main thread. You can't really tell. Yep. But it will uh, not – if you call this function, it will not block. Instead, uh, if you want to – if you want to call this function and wait for the result, you use the word await in front of the function call. So you would say like something like await, I don't know, fetch login information. And what happens then is you can only call async functions from other async functions. And so the so every time you use the await keyword, you have to be in an asynchronous context. So it all fits very neatly into into each other and it's it, it's all very neatly encapsulated the problem is of course how do you call this from regular synchronous code and that's where tasks come in so you can from anywhere in your app anywhere in your code you can use um, a task which is just uh, a thing that you instantiate and that takes a code block and run that and inside that code block that that tasks the task runs that is asynchronous so if you want to add asynchronous code to your function start a task put your asynchronous calls in there and then your async stuff runs in there yeah um this is very neat because it slowly begins infecting your code. So at the beginning, you just have like one async function somewhere, but then you want to call that and you're like, oh, it would be very easy to um, to refactor this function into async as well because that is actually very easy to do and it makes them way clearer to read. And so slowly but surely, your code base gets infected by this new paradigm that is very convenient and easy and fun. Um, and one thing that I haven't talked about, but you have, is actors. Yep. And an actor is, and this is a very unscientific, dirty explanation, but how I think of an actor is it's a class that marks its properties with dispatchq.sync. Ooh. So basically, whenever I access these the, these properties of an actor, they are... Uh, running like all these accesses are running on the same thread, and so uh, the the actor class automatically prevents any race conditions from occurring. It's a really good description. And then 
if I can just bounce off that, when I refer to the uh-huh. main actor, the main actor is one of those that is linked to the main thread. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and you can use this. You can use this whenever you can use. Um, it used to be you could only use it on macOS twelve, I think, and iOS fifteen. That's right. I'm yeah. unsure whether they have backported it now. They were planning to, I think. I believe they have. But if you are supporting a more or less modern operating system, you should be able to use these things. Also in Swift Vapor, um, on the server, you just have to use. You just have to compile your code with Swift five point five. Brilliant. It's it's definitely been um, a bit of a journey for me in the last couple of weeks, actually, since we last spoke, where I, I've sort of started using this a little bit. And then, yeah, I've had exactly that that situation you described with the, uh, the new project I'm working on at home, um, mm-hmm. where it's infected the code base behind the scenes. And it's like, yeah, okay, that that is an asynchronous call that that can be now awaiting the output of that oh hang on a second that's made me i can get rid of that block you know and right. it, everything just sort of starts to tighten up that little bit more so i'm, I'm converted and, and you know? if you're using swift ui it's swift ui is getting these helpers that will also help you introduce and include uh, async await code right so you can just bolt it bolt it into the swift ui views and just call these things yeah, but what I'm saying is it's not as hard as it seems initially. Um, feel free to try it out. Yeah. Just dip your toe in. It's fine. The water is nice. <laughs> I think one thing I've appreciated with it is that um, I've uh, I've got a couple of situations where I've got, for example, a view model class that mm-hmm. the view is linked to. The view model is an observable object. The view is SwiftUI, and the view model, when it changes its published properties, the SwiftUI view is, mm-hmm. is responding to that. And the view model itself has bindings, combined-based bindings, where it is reading some global published state that is also coming from an observable object um, mm-hmm. from one of my shared services within the app. And the shared service is has got dispatch calls and things inside of it it's got background threads that are running through um parts libraries and things that i can't control you know for example i'm I'm using a an authentication services library that is not my own so i have no Mm -hmm. no control to make it async await however what i can do in my binding to that global state that then may end up getting updated by one of these background threads my binding in my view model can take that data, can give it to an asynchronous um, function. So a function that I've used this async await setup and I've flagged it as being an async function in my view model. So it can receive the data from the global object, send it to that. It has to open a task to go and do it. But then Mm -hmm. on that function inside the view model, I can flag it as needing to be a main actor function. So I can guarantee that it updates the published properties the view responds to on the main thread, regardless of what the global service is doing, regardless of what somebody else's library is doing. At the view model state stage, right next to the view, I can guarantee that I'm only going to be on the, on the main thread by making a function in my view model, function in my view model, to receive this data and telling it that it's a main actor function. And that, that for me is quite beautiful. I really quite like that sort of setup. Um, the intentionality mm-hmm. of what is going on is there for me. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, it doesn't matter what thread my binding comes back on. You know, my local function inside of the, the view model guarantees that it's only ever going to be executed on the main thread. Um, I, th- I think that's that's pretty cool. It's amazing. Um, so just for understanding this better, would you be able to make the view model itself an actor or a main actor? Ooh, that's a thought I hadn't had. <laughs> can you do that? Can you can you tell? I, I don't know because I don't know how bindings, if bindings work with actors or if actors are just like 
completely completely disconnected from the whole combine yeah. binding thing. I'd need to test it. I suspect the binding will still execute on the thread that the observed mm. property has been changed from. Yeah, I that suspect. might be the case. Yeah. Um, and then all that's going to happen is, is that that declaration, if you were to move the main actor declaration to the class itself, then all that's going to happen is you no longer need to flag your functions themselves inside of that that class because they're already main actor functions. Mm -hmm. um, so it probably just moves it up a level to the class rather than the function. Uh, but I don't think it would change what the uh, what the binding is doing. Um, I'll have to test it. I, I have no idea. <laughs> oh yeah, please report back. But either way, it's like exciting. It's a new um, paradigm, and I was as initially I was like super skeptical, and I thought, okay, what is this? This seems very complicated, but um, it it was surprisingly easy to to jump in. It's very nice, and. Um, yeah, it, the thing is, I'm even writing some JavaScript sometimes now, and I found this thing called um, Ember Concurrency that I'm using, which I'm not going to go into it, but it gives me almost the exact same um, functions and keywords and stuff like that. And I'm not 100% sure right now because I'm a newbie in JavaScript, like which part of that is pure JavaScript and which part of it is the library. But I also have tasks, yeah. I have async functions, I can await them. And that's just amazing. That's cool. So it's not just a model for Swift. This is a model that echoes other environments. Yeah, and as I, well. I've heard, um, I mean, people feel free to at us on Twitter about this, but I've heard things before that. Like Swift has taken some inspiration from JavaScript here, which makes complete sense um, because um, all these other languages have these amazing ideas and why not um, proliferate them through the ecosystem? Well, I'm, I'm all for it. It means it's uh, much less of a hurdle when you need to move from one thing to another. Okay, so um, I'm going to continue writing async code on the server. Apparently, you're going to continue writing async code on the app yeah and um what i haven't told you about this week is i'm going to also continue doing my my reaching out program where i try to uh get people to know telemetry deck because uh the the, the word needs to get out by the way telemetrydeck.com if you haven't uh, checked it out and um linked in the show notes thank you very much and i'm very much looking forward to hearing you again in a fortnight at the latest, but we might yep. talk earlier if, um, depending on our schedules and commitments. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, great talking to you, Daniel. Catch you again soon. Oh, yeah, it has been amazing. See ya.